Lucille Ball did the occasional interview after she left television in 1974, mostly on talk shows. There's only one way to introduce this legendary entertainer. Here is the first lady of television, Miss Lucille Ball. Watching those interviews now, you can feel how excited the studio audience was to see her. Lucy was always asked some version of this question. Would you ever go back to a weekly series? That's Merv Griffin. Lucy was on his talk show in 1981. I don't think so. Um, I mean, Why? Well, Gail is around, but my Vivian's gone. Right. And, um, well, let's not talk about it. But There's you... no sense in trying to top what we've done. No, but there's a continuity of coming up with something brand new and proving yourself again. Nah. I thought you were more of a gambler than that. You just don't want to have to go to work every day. I know. Not at all. You're very wrong about that. Merv Griffin was definitely wrong about that. Lucy missed working, but she seemed to have really thought about why she wouldn't do another series. Listen to how clear-eyed she sounds here in this interview with Barbara Walters. Oh, I'd been on long enough, I thought, and uh, I kind of always prided myself on knowing when to get off, and I felt that really I had stayed on about four or five years longer than I planned. Also, with the new shows, I began to feel a little old-fashioned. Lucy was basically retired. She was about to turn 70. She was in a stable marriage. Her kids were doing well. Lucy Arnez was a new mom. Desi Jr. was in recovery. Lucy was healthy, rich, and could fill her days doing whatever she wanted. But Lucille Ball was always at war with her impulse to work. It was so deep inside her. The battle over the next seven years would be one of the hardest of Lucy's life, learning just to let go. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz, and you're listening to Season 3 of The Plot Thickens, a podcast from Turner Classic Movies. This season, we're telling the story of how Lucille Ball became the funniest, most recognizable woman in America. This is Episode 10, Twilight. Lucy tried to keep busy in retirement. She was in a skiing accident when she was 60 and still had some trouble with her legs. I love word games, and I've had to stop some of the, you know, tennis and golf and things like that because of the legs. I used to do those things. I still swim. And I ride a bicycle, but I do a lot of reading, playing games. One game captured Lucy's attention like no other. She started playing backgammon in the 70s at a place called Pips in L.A. That's Jim Brochu. He played backgammon with Lucy. Pips was a private backgammon club in Beverly Hills. Members paid $1,000 a year to play there. It had custom backgammon tables and mirrored walls. It was started by another backgammon fanatic, Hugh Hefner, the head of the Playboy Empire. Lucy was a regular at Pips. 
And she just was very enamored of the game. It's really a great game. And um, it was just a way for her to uh, pass the time. There's a photo of Lucy at Pips. She's sitting at a table. Her bright orange hair has been set with curlers. She's wearing large, oversized glasses that are the same color as her hair. Her nails are painted pink. They match her lipstick. She's pointing a cigarette in her hand, and she's in the middle of a laugh, a big, hearty laugh, mouth wide open. (laughs) The best thing I could possibly do is make her laugh, and she had this real guttural laugh. That's Lee Tannen. He's Gary Morton's cousin. He also played backgammon with Lucy. Lucy had the most beautiful fingers, you know, and and she could smoke with one hand, you know, and roll the dice out with the other hand. About the most fun I have is uh, giving backgammon tournaments, although I'm not a good backgammon player, but I like it. I remember so many times in the Beverly Hills house where they lived, when she would have these tournaments. <laughs> I call them tournaments. They were nothing but battles between her and her cohorts. That's Lucy's brother, Fred Ball, talking to PBS in 2000. And it was ferocious. She was a tiger. Gary didn't like backgammon, so Lucy was thrilled when Gary's cousin Lee would stay in their guest house. And then, so when I came along in 1980, she had about three years of backgammon under her belt, so I had to learn. Lee says Lucy's house looked like it was frozen in time. Lots of green shag carpeting that I hadn't seen in 20 years. The whole house was lots of shag, lots of formica. The kitchen was also, by the way, very 1950s. Oh, my God. All green appliances. Sort of like you could have used it for an I Love Lucy set, almost. Lucy was no longer interested in fashion trends. She wore a lot of jogging suits. Sometimes Lee would suggest she wear something else. That seldom went well. Her thing was, she says to me, Jesus Christ, I made 75 films and I was a showgirl and I had to change costumes and more than two, da, 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 and so I'm going to be comfortable. So the last 10 years of her life, jogging suits with a, either a Lucy insignia or a big red L, you know, with a jogging suit and with a big scarf on her head and big glasses and a floor-length lynx coat. She looked like she was wearing four different costumes right there. And she always had like a white lunchbox style purse. And in the purse, she had her compact and her glasses and her cigarettes. Oh, she had also a plastic baggie full of dollar bills. Lucy liked to play for money, but kept the stakes low. Batgammon was clearly filling a hole in her life. Backgammon was, she was able to control it. You know, she was able to be the star of it. She played with who she wanted to play. She played when she wanted to play. I just like to play uh, games, and right now... It's a good thing I have a game or two. I I miss my work. In 1985, Lucy did go back to work. Now in her early 70s, Lucy spends most of her time at home with her husband of 24 years, Gary Morton. But she is returning to television in a role that's quite a departure for her. Lucy plays a bag lady in the TV movie Stone Pillow. Bag lady, why don't you pick another corner? Because this is my corner, that's why. Stone Pillow was shot on New York's Lower East Side. Lucy played an unhoused woman named Florabelle. She insisted the character have the same name as her grandmother. I wanted her to be vulnerable, feisty, and capable of taking care of herself, and she was a loner. It was a pretty bold move for Lucy. Everyone knew her from sitcoms. 
Now, here she was playing a woman who lived on the street. And I thought, well, this is sticking my neck out. And I don't know what my fans will think, but I have to grow up sometime. And at least this doesn't have anything that I object to. And it's not a cause celeb, but it's, it's something close to my heart I have compassion for. Lucille Ball stars in her first network television drama. When she shot Stone Pillow in New York, it was supposed to be the winter. Lucy's friend, Jim Brochu. And so she was dressed in uh, all sorts of wool and overcoats and uh, wool caps and the, uh, the gray wig and, uh, you know, not much makeup. We were out 33 days on the streets of New York. Not one person stopped in front and said, you're Lucy, aren't you? Not one person. Lucy gave up all vanity for the role, except for one thing. She refused to cut her perfectly manicured nails. Instead, she painted them black. The shoot itself was hard. Lucy was 73 at this point, and because of delays, they had to shoot into the late spring. It was terribly hot, and we were supposed to be shooting in the middle of the winter. And I was dressed for grisly February. And it was 98, 99, 100, 102, 105, 107. In one place, it was 122. Yeah, in a boiler room that we worked in. And with all the clothes and the wig and everything, I lost 23 pounds. Lucy had to be hospitalized after the shoot. She was so dehydrated. Stone Pillow was not what the public wanted from Lucille Ball. They didn't want to see Lucy Ricardo, poor and destitute, living on the street. The reviews were mixed and fans were disappointed. Dick Martin was a comedian and a director. He was a friend of Lucy's. I believe Lucille Ball felt trapped as Lucy because there was nothing. You can't get that big and that identifiable and try to break out of it. You can't do it. There's no way. For most Americans, Lucille Ball could only be some version of Lucy Ricardo. But that wasn't what Lucy wanted any longer. Her husband, Gary Morton, felt differently. Gary believed Lucy should give the public what they wanted. So together they made a decision. The worst career decision Lucy ever made. When we return, Lucy gets canceled. Lucy was depressed after Stone Pillow, but Gary had a solution. Today, Lucille and her second husband, former comedian Gary Morton, form a producing team. Gary wanted Lucy to go back to television sitcoms. He and Aaron Spelling came up with an idea for a sitcom centered around Lucy. Spelling was the producer of Charlie's Angels and Dynasty. He was looking to get into comedy. They pitched the idea to ABC and landed 22 episodes without a pilot. Lee Tannen blames Gary for luring Lucy back to sitcoms. Gary, who saw big money in it for her because ABC was willing to pay her big, big bucks, and that was really important to Gary. Money was really important to Gary. But let's be honest, Lucy was no pushover. She was convinced her fans only wanted to see her as Lucy Ricardo. TCM's first host and Lucy's friend Robert Osborne thinks Lucy wanted to get out of the house. 
He told PBS about it in 1999. She wanted some place to go. She also wanted a place that she could be a queen in the domain where she was the boss and could call the shots. She was bored. She didn't feel needed. She wanted to be useful again. That's Lucy's daughter, Lucy Arnaz. And this is all she knows. You know, this is what she does. She really wasn't a functioning grandparent in the way most grandparents are. She's not going to go pick up her kids and drive them places. She wasn't ready to retire, retire ever. Actors don't really retire. And (sighs) Gary talked her into it. In March 1986, the New York Daily News read, Surprise! Lucille Ball, 74, the nation's all-time favorite comedian, will return next fall with a new weekly sitcom. Fans were thrilled. But Lucy was distracted by her ex-husband. Desi was still living at the beach house in Del Mar. He'd remarried a woman named Edie Hirsch. She had lived next door to Desi and Lucy. Edie died of cancer the same year Stone Pillow came out. And Desi had stopped drinking. The year after Edie died, um, he went through alcohol rehab at the advice of my brother, because he got so sick. And after an entire lifetime of saying, no, I don't air my dirty laundry in front of anybody, which is a very kind of Latin thing, you know, he said, okay, what do I have to do? I was incredibly proud of him for that. My favorite moment I tell people is that I remember sitting next to him in one of those big meetings and for the guy who never took responsibility and said, you know, I I don't drink too much, I can always handle my liquor. And I was there with him when he could stand up next to me and introduce himself to the crowd in the way they do. My name is Desi and I'm an alcoholic. Proudest moment of my life. God, that was great. Everyone was relieved when Desi stopped drinking. It had taken such a toll on his health. Lucy and Desi talked on the phone often over the years. Here's Desi on Entertainment Tonight in the 80s. We had 20 wonderful years together, and we're still very close, you know. We talked two, three times every other week on the phone, and we got wonderful kids. Now we got a grandson. Looks like Rocky Graciano already, this character. <laughs> So we're very close and we're very good friends. I still love her very much. But the latest phone call with Desi was one Lucy never wanted, the kind all of us dread. Desi told her he had an aggressive form of lung cancer. Privately, I'm sure she was devastated. Uh, My mom was always very stoic, but I also knew that she always felt sorry for him that he was not in the best of shape and that she watched him deteriorate for years, you know. So this was like, of course, of course this is happening. For the next six months, Lucy's life would be consumed by two things, making a new television show and watching Desi fight for his life. A month before Lucille Ball turned 75, she stepped in front of a live studio audience to film her new TV show, Life with Lucy. She played Lucy Barker, a widow and grandmother who moves in with her daughter's family. 
Oh, it's so good to be here. It's so good having you here. <laughs> oh, I'm a grandma heaven. She's still zany, and uh, she is a grandmother and a caring one. I wanted to do a show about, about Lucy the way I am now. Lucy's character also becomes part owner of a hardware store run by her son-in-law's father. He was played by Gail Gordon. Gordon was in all of Lucy's TV shows. I'm co-owner now. Why do you keep forgetting that? Wishful thinking. Gary was the show's executive producer. He brought back the writers from I Love Lucy, Bob Carroll and Madeline Pugh. And this time, instead of Desi, Gary approved all the scripts. Lee Tannen went to the first taping of the show. With an audience, you know, the same kind of three-camera system with the bleachers, with the people, everything was, you know, Gary came out and warmed up the audience, unfunny as he is. Oh, look at that. Oh, gee, it's, it's, it's a wonderful feeling to know that you're all here. Gary wasn't that funny, and neither was the show. You're living here now? I just moved in. She was trying to do all the things that she did for 25, 30 years. But again, TV was changing and tastes were changing and times were changing. And in 1986, nobody wanted to see Lucy clown like that. She climbed rolling ladders in the hardware store and messed with gadgets. Things that look dangerous for a 75-year-old woman to do. And it just wasn't as funny. And she knew it. She knew it from the first table read. But she was stuck. She had to do it. Lucy had always relied on Desi for advice. She always sought advice from Dad all the time. I mean, they called each other several times a week. Uh, He would call her about stuff in his life, and she would always call him for advice on scripts, on deals, things that would come up. He knew what was good for her. Tom Gilbert wrote about Lucy and Desi's partnership. And he protected her. And he guided her through a lot of the stuff that she was afraid to do because she said, I'm going to look like a fool. And he would say, don't worry about it. It's funny. I mean, even Gary, you know, God bless him. He's there. He's always there. But he, he wasn't a deep thinker. He wasn't an inspired thinker. He wasn't my dad. And she missed a lot of the stuff that my dad was great at and that he was passionate about and that he was smart about. The new show might have been called Life with Lucy, but as she went through rehearsals, Lucy called it Life with Angst. She showed up to work exhausted. She'd stay up late talking to Desi on the phone. He was getting worse, and Lucy would stay on the phone with him while he cried. Lucy Arnaz moved into Desi's Del Mar house. She called her mother. And I said, you know, I'm, I don't know for sure, but the nurse is saying it might not be long. And if you want to see him or anything, that's when I knew that she was upset because I could hear from her voice, even on the phone, her trying to be stoic, you know, that sort of, okay, that kind of reaction. Desi didn't want Lucy to see him so frail, so sick, but Lucy went anyway. She drove down to Del Mar and spent the day with Desi. You know, he was a little groggy, of course. 
but he always pull himself up and, you know, it's Lucy, for God's sakes. <laughs> I, be- I better look good. Lucy sat by Desi's bed, and they talked. I tried to think of things for them to do. Well, you know, do you want tea, cookies? Can I make lunch? No, honey, it's fine. We're, we're fine. So I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll just put some entertainment on for you. And I put I Love Lucy shows on the VHS machine, and they sat there and watched some of their favorite episodes together. Now, I'm going to be right here. You, you just take it easy. Okay, I'll take it easy. <laughs> corny as corny gets, I'm sorry. Yes, I thought it was right. I'll do the best I can. And it was, because they laughed. Lucy and Desi reminisced. Then she got back in the car for the two-hour drive back to Beverly Hills. Life with Lucy premiered in the fall of 1986. ABC put it on Saturday nights. Lee Tannen watched the premiere at Lucy's house. And Lucy was sitting kind of about 20, 30 feet from the TV, and Gary was on the other side. And it, it was just, it was disaster. And the end credits rolled, and Lucy didn't even say goodnight. She just walked across the living room, the den floor, and up the stairway and into her room. She didn't come out for three days. Three days. The critics were not kind about the show or about Lucy. She went on Joan Rivers' talk show. Yeah. Are you thrilled to be working again? <laughs> well, yes. Yes, uh, no doubt about that. I'm thrilled to be working, but I, I didn't uh, have any idea that I would get chastised for working. Which means? I got uh, some lousy notices, if you'll excuse the word notices, um, for coming back to work at all, which I thought was very strange. I can take critique, you know, about the show, and and I've done that for years, but to be critiqued for coming back at all... But don't you think... That threw me. I cried. My God, I cried. If they had just critiqued my show, as I said, be different. But they didn't want me to come back to work. Eight episodes of Life with Lucy aired on ABC. They shot 13. On the day they shot that 13th episode, ABC canceled the show. It was November 6, 1986. Life with Lucy was one of the lowest-rated shows on television, finishing 71st out of 74 shows. And it didn't work. And they literally, not only just didn't work, but it wasn't her choice saying, you know, I don't like it, it's not working. They fired her. I mean, they canceled the show. That had never happened to her in her life. Unfortunately, all she wanted to do was work as an actress. And all the public would ever buy her in was Lucy. And then it came that they wouldn't buy her as Lucy. And then that was the tragedy of her life. When that last series failed, she was quite a broken woman. Very, very upset about that because she thought the public didn't like her anymore. For four decades, the public adored Lucy. Now she felt abandoned by them. If only she knew back then what we know today, that the public would continue to like her, to love her even, for years to come. Three weeks after her show was canceled, Lucy called her daughter at Desi's. It was November 30th. 
Lucy and Desi's 46th wedding anniversary. He was really not well. And she called and she said, how is he doing? And I said, not, not so good, not so good. Might just be another 24 hours, I don't know. It's not, doesn't look good. So she says, can I, can I talk to him? And I said, yeah, and I put the phone up to his ear and I could just hear them telling each other that they loved each other. That's all they did was say, I love you, I love you. He could only have the strength just to say, I love you too, honey. And I could hear her saying, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And if you look at some of their original home movies, there's this thing that they did with each other, the silent color 16 millimeter home movies. But you can see them in the home movies mouthing, I love you, 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 was a thing they used to do. I was like, oh my God, that's what that moment was. How was them doing that thing? Oh my God. That phone call was the last time Lucy and Desi spoke. Two days later, at five minutes after midnight, Desi Arnaz died in his daughter's arms. He was 69 years old. To this day, it bothers Lucy Arnaz that her father is often remembered mostly as a drinker and a cheater, as someone who destroyed his marriage to her mother. There's so much more to him. And oddly enough, the fact that he was all of those things and still was the most charming host, the best party giver, a tremendous father, like when he was home, he was truly home, great participating grandparent, picked up every check. If he heard that in passing, your producer's mother was in the hospital with a broken leg, he would, without telling anybody, call up the hospital and say, send the bill to me. But he had PTSD from the revolution and from parents who never really said, you know what? You're phenomenal. What you've done is spectacular. They went, is that it? Is that all we got? Is, it, is there anything in there for me? And you just want to order another martini. And when he wasn't drinking, oh my God, who was more fun than him? Nobody. I mean, he taught us how to fish. He taught us how to appreciate nature and camping. And they always point out every single sunset and rainbows. And he was a Renaissance man. He was brilliant. He was self-taught. Never went to college. He read 10 papers a day. Gee, he was just too good to be true. Coming up, Lucy goes to Washington. Desi's funeral was held at the St. James Catholic Church, close to his home in Del Mar. It was just uh, a few local friends, all the nurses that took care of him. My mom, Gary, and Danny Thomas came down. I remember Danny Thomas, as soon as he heard he died, called me and said, I want to do the eulogy. (laughs) That's 
a gig. Okay, I don't really know you. I don't think I've ever met you, Mr. Thomas, but oh, 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 I'm going to write that down. <laughs> One of Danny Thomas's TV shows was filmed at Desilu. Desi laughed so hard while the pilot was being shot, Danny Thomas used that to get the show greenlit. About a hundred people were at the funeral. Lucy wore a tan suit and blouse. She sat in the front pew with Gary and her children. At the foot of the altar was a photo of Desi smiling in his fishing hat. The day after Desi's funeral, Lucy flew to Washington, D.C. to receive a Kennedy Center honor. First of all, it's the highest honor you can get in the country for, for the performing arts. Other recipients that year included Ray Charles and actors Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy, a Hollywood couple married 44 years. Lucy asked Lee Tannen and his partner to join her and Gary for the weekend in D.C. I remember I got a call from her, and she said, you got a tuxedo, baby? Because if you don't, you better rent one. Don't buy one, rent one. I'll pay you back. Recipients got their medals at the White House. Then there was a televised award ceremony. Lucy was emotional. She was still reeling from the show getting canceled and Desi dying, all within the last three weeks. She was shit-faced from Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I mean shit-faced. Feels good saying that. Great. Lucy would, Lucy would even approve of that, because she was. She really was. But Lucy held it together for the public events. This Kennedy Center honor means a great deal to me. At this particular time, boy, it couldn't have come at a better time. It just gives me my, a good feeling back again, which I had lost. Walter Cronkite hosted the award ceremony and introduced the recipients. A kid with stars in her eyes from Jamestown, New York, who became the best known and maybe the best comedian of all time. Even the honor itself took its toll because I think she was so upset that, that Desi Arnaz had not gotten it with her, even though it would have been posthumously for him. And I agree with her. I think Desi was one of the most underrated people ever to grace television. Lucy told her longtime secretary, Wanda Clark, how upset she was that Desi didn't get the award with her. And Lucy always regretted that they didn't include Desi in that Hall of Fame. She said they did Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy as a couple. They should have done Desi with me. The world loves Lucy. After a short film about Lucy's life, the audience gave her a long standing ovation. Then Robert Stack walked onto the stage. He was the lead in Desi Lou's hit show, The Untouchables. He had a letter from Desi. He wanted to be here tonight. I'd like to read something that he wrote. The camera cuts to Lucy in the balcony box where the award winners were seated. I love Lucy at just one mission, to make people laugh. Lucy gave it a rare quantity. She can perform the wildest, even the messiest physical comedy without losing her feminine appeal. The New York Times asked me to divide the credit for its success between the writers, the directors, and the cast. I told them, give Lucy 90% of the credit and divide the other 10% among the rest of us. As the camera cuts to Lucy again, she puts her hand to her mouth. Desi concluded, Lucy was the show. 
Viv and Fred and I were just props. Damn good props, but props nevertheless. P.S. I Love Lucy was never just a title. Her hands still covering her mouth, holding back tears, Lucy takes a deep breath. Then the tone shifts. TV sitcom stars B. Arthur, Pam Dauber, and Valerie Harper walk across the stage to pay their respects to Lucille Ball. In 1988, when Lucy was 77 years old, she started playing backgammon with a young writer named Jim Brochu. I knew I could make her laugh. That was the bond. And I knew she loved to laugh. Lucy was not funny of herself, but boy, did she appreciate humor. And there was never a better audience. Lucy had suffered a minor stroke that spring. She had some paralysis on her right side and her face drooped slightly. A nurse had moved in to help her recover. She was self-conscious about her face and speech. So she stayed home even more than usual. She didn't have much company. Her friends had died. Her backgammon partners had died. She wasn't going out. Jim would go over to Lucy's at 1.30 every day during the week. They would play backgammon for three or four hours. And if the TV wasn't on, they'd listen to music. Thank you. Thank you. Swing low. Sweet. Bobby Darren at the Copa was her favorite album. We listened to it every damn day. I knew every note of that album. (laughs) Gary was absent a lot. He would go to Palm Springs. He would play golf. He was uh, usually never there during the day. He'd come home at 6 o'clock. And uh, they used to call each other by their, well, her made-up name and his real name. His real name was Morton Goldapper. And when Lucy was a model, she picked the name Diane Belmont. So uh, Gary would come home and he'd say, hello, Diane. Hiya, Morty. And uh, that's how they referred to each other. Jim went with Lucy to see her daughter, Lucy Arnaz, perform in a charity show. Lucy Arnaz's career had taken off, both in television and especially on the stage. And it was her orchestra, and she looked great. And boy, did she stop the show. Kick 
to watch Lucille watching Lucy was like watching the moon being reflected in the sun. She adored her daughter, and she knew what a great performer she was. And she just sat there beaming the whole time and being the first to applaud and applaud wildly. Lucy's relationship with her mother hit some rough batches over the years, like any mother-daughter relationship. Though when your mother is Lucille Ball, the details are different. We had actually been going through a lot of emotional stuff. You and her? Yeah. It was not a, it was a rough time for us those last few years. I don't know. She got real prickly. I didn't understand what was going on. She was, I wasn't able to turn to her much for advice about being a stepmother, which I was at the time, or any problems that were happening with my kids. I always wished that I could turn to a parent. I do think she got a little depressed and got in maybe into a frame of mind like, is that all there is? What else is there? Which surprised me, I think. I think it surprised me, but she hardened up a little more, closed in the walls around her. Didn't buckle down and just enjoy what was there to enjoy. I saw her pull pull away. I mean, her mother was gone. My father was gone. We had our own lives with kids. She didn't have, like, a best friend. There weren't any people to commiserate with, and maybe she just got kind of lonely and tired. That's what I saw. In 1989, Bob Hope asked Lucy to join him at the Oscars to introduce a musical number. Lucy didn't want to do it, but she couldn't say no to Bob Hope. Well, a couple of weeks before the Oscars, I came over about 1.30 in the afternoon, and there was a fellow there named Rhett Turner, and Rhett was a uh, uh, dress designer, costume designer, brilliant. And so he had about 10 sketches lined up uh, along the the wall, and uh, Lucy was looking at them because she was going to pick one of them to be her dress for the Oscars. And so she uh, pointed to this kind of blue, very light chiffon one. And she said, I think I'm going to do that one. And I said, oh, she said, well, which one do you like? And I pointed to a black dress that had big sleeves, all glitter uh, with a slit for the leg. And uh, I said, I think that's the one. And she said, yeah, okay. And it had a silver collar. And she said, all right, I want that one, but make the silver gold to match my hair. So that's the dress that she picked for the Oscars that night. Ladies and gentlemen, Lucille Ball and Bob Hope. When Lucy and Bob Hope walked across the stage at the Oscars, all those sequins sparkled in the lights. But that's not what everyone was looking at. It was Lucy's legs. The slit in the dress was cut to the very top of her thigh. She was 77, and her legs looked amazing. Come on. Look, she walks out and the whole auditorium, what was it like, one of those gigantic auditoriums, they all stood immediately, her and Bob Hope. It was a magnificent moment, just spectacular. They got the longest standing ovation of the night. How about that? How about it? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. What a night. 
I haven't seen so many gorgeous girls since I spent Father's Day with Steve Garvey. <laughs> Later that evening, crowds cheered as Lucy and Gary waited for their car to go home. They yelled Lucy's name. She laughed and waved. And then she made the most of that dress. She kicked up her leg like a chorus girl. The crowd loved it. It was Lucille Ball's final public appearance. In the weeks following the Oscars, Lucy felt off. She was tired and not herself. On Tuesday, April 18, 1989, Lucy was in a lot of pain. Her daughter, Lucy, and Gary drove her to Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Jim Brochu showed up at the house on Roxbury Drive for their backgammon game. So it was the next day. I was uh, on my way over to um, the house, and um, I got there at 1.30, and there was nobody there. And finally, Chris, the houseman, came in, and I said, where is everybody? And he said, Madame is in the hospital. Well, she had had a mini heart attack, I suppose, that night, and she was um, admitted to Cedars-Sinai. So the news was uh, not good. We couldn't see her for the whole first, like, 12 hours. It was, you know, very long operation. She was in intensive care. Nobody can go in there. Lucy went through six and a half hours of emergency open-heart surgery to repair a ruptured aorta. The next day, she was stable, and the doctors said she might recover. When she came out of surgery and could finally speak, Lucy whispered to her daughter. Wouldn't you know, she said, this was the day I was going to get my hair done. Thousands of fans called the hospital. You know, I mean, the calls, they were coming in, and the flowers that were coming in from all over the world. The Cedars-Sinai was the hospital, and it was across the street from the Hard Rock Cafe, and the Hard Rock Cafe hung a big, big sign that said, we love you, Lucy, that she could see from her ICU window. The outpouring of love was truly, truly, truly amazing. An average of 5,000 cards arrived at the hospital every day. Even Michael Jackson called Gary to say he cared about Lucy. People in Jamestown started working on a giant get well card for her. By Thursday, Lucy was sitting up in a chair, cracking jokes. They put her in a less intensive care room, and Desi and I both showed up at the hospital the same day that day, which was kind of incredible. That had never happened before. I remember looking at her and saying, I said, I, I got to go. I've got rehearsal downtown. Um, do you need anything from the house? Can I bring you anything? She said, yeah, my Florida water. Florida water. It's, it's a tall bottle of this. It's like a guy's perfume you put on handkerchiefs. She loved it. Bring me my Florida water and a hairbrush. They forgot the hairbrush. Oh, okay. And then I looked at her hands and I said, ugh, you have those patty nails. It's fake nail stuff that you put on your nails and it lasts forever, and, but it ruins your nails. And it takes all kinds of shenanigans to get them off. And you get addicted to it because to take it off is horrible and then your nails are too soft so you keep getting, it's like crack. It's like crack nail polish. <laughs> and I looked at her hands and I said, you have patty nails. And she said, I do. I got to get off of these. And I said, I have, look at mine, awful. I can't, but I got to do a show tonight. And I go, I can't take them off because it's, gonna, we had, we talked about patty nails. 
And I kissed her, and uh, I thought I'd see her in the morning. We turned on the Today Show, and there was the news that uh, she had died that morning. And uh, my friend uh, Ricky Levine Lyon was her nurse. And she said she uh, woke up about 5.15 in the morning, and she just clutched her heart, and um, she died very peacefully. Lucille Ball died on Wednesday, April 26th, 1989. We interrupt this program to bring you the following special report. From TV MPC stations News. interrupted programs with the news. Lucille Ball died today after suffering cardiac arrest. The red-haired queen of comedy's death has come as a complete shock and surprise to everybody. One of America's most popular entertainers, Lucille Tears Ball. Tears and Lu tributes continue following the death of... Lucille Ball, comedian so whose TV series I not, Love Lucy. Uh, giving any statements out today, not having anybody come Reporters out set up camp across from Lucy's house in Beverly Hills. Flags in Los Angeles were flown at half-staff. Once in a long while, there's a public figure we come to love, permanently, ineradicably, utterly. If someone told you earlier today Lucy died, you didn't have to ask Lucy who. You knew who. Her gifts were enormous. They were timeless. They were universal. Former President Ronald Reagan spoke to the press. She was a friend. We loved her dearly, and she's truly going to be missed. So did comedian Carl Reiner. I once won an, an Emmy for something, and Lucy handed it to me. She was the one who called my name. And you know, my parents were more thrilled about the fact that I got it from Lucy than I won the award. And I think I was, too. And blues singer Lou Rawls. She was a good lady. That's, I mean, you know, what can you say? I mean, you can say all the accolades and all that stuff, but it still doesn't say what the woman was. She was something to everybody. It was funny, and um, it always made me laugh. Everyday fans told reporters how much they loved watching Lucy. She's an institution, you know? She was a, an American institution. Every time Lucy come on, don't turn the TV, don't say nothing. I want it quiet in this house while I watch Lucy. Lucy died on Carol Burnett's birthday. Lucy was a mentor to Carol, and they'd appeared together often on television. Every birthday, she would send me flowers with a card saying, Happy Birthday, Kid. And so this one morning, I got up, and it was my birthday, and I turned on uh, Good Morning America, or one of them, and she had died that morning on my birthday. And I just, it was just such a blow. And then that afternoon, Bing bong, I opened the door, and there were flowers. It said, happy birthday, kid. Lucy's ashes were interred at Forest Lawn Cemetery in Los Angeles. She wanted to be buried next to her mother, Dee Dee. She had strict orders that she was to be cremated and that none of that, she didn't want a funeral. No quote-unquote funerals. I said, no, people should be given the opportunity to mourn. On May 8th, Lucy's children held three memorial services. So we did Santa Monica for the Los Angeles people. We did Chicago and New York. All on a Monday night. It all started at 9 o'clock, just like the show. Each memorial service was filled to capacity. Hundreds of people gathered in the streets outside. But Lucy Arnaz also organized a smaller, more intimate service a week later. 
and was inspired by something she found the day her mom died. I wandered upstairs to my mother's bedroom. And then next to her bed, she had a notebook. And on it, she started listing childhood things that she was remembering about Jamestown. And one of them was picnics. I loved picnics. And I thought, oh, wow. And then she had the menu, exactly what she wanted to have. I love picnics. It's my favorite thing to do. We had pimento cheese sandwiches. We had fried chicken. We had jello. We, and I went, okay, ripped that page out and went, that's what we're doing. Thank you, Mom. I just figured she wants me to know this because she said no funeral. On Mother's Day, about 50 of Lucy's family and friends gathered for a picnic. Invited all the people she worked with, as many family members who could be there, friends, friends, everybody. We took over the Robert Taylor estate, one of the canyons off of Sunset. And it was delightful. Just a good old-fashioned American family picnic. And there was a pool, and there were pool games and watermelon races and... It was just a a fun, old-fashioned picnic. And we raised a a glass to her at the end of the day and and all knew how much we missed her and uh, how lucky we were to have been part of her life and to be there to celebrate her. When Lucy Arnaz visited Forest Lawn Cemetery to pay her respects to her mom and Dee Dee, it didn't feel right. Their ashes were kept in a memorial wall with a plaque on it. And I, as the chorus line song says, felt nothing. Nothing. It was a cold, awful, ugly, white marble wall. And I wasn't the least bit moved. Lucy had an idea. She ran it by her brother, Desi Jr., then checked with her mom's brother, Fred, and cousin Cleo. And I said, you know, Everybody's back in Jamestown. The whole hunt plot is there. Her father's buried there. What would you think if I just took Dee Dee and Mom out of the little wall here and, and moved them back to Jamestown, put everybody together? And they said, oh, my God, that's a fantastic idea. And Fred said, leave room for me, you know. So that's what we did. In 2002, Lucy and Dee Dee's ashes were moved to Lakeview Cemetery in Jamestown, New York. It's a beautiful cemetery with old trees and lilac bushes, Lucy's favorite flower. Grandpa Hunt is there, too. So is her grandmother, Florabelle, and Lucy's father, Henry. As our first offering this evening, we present that inimitable personality, that versatile entertainer, Lucy! People all over the world mostly remember Lucille Ball as Lucy Ricardo. She lives on that way, through our TVs and on the Internet, on our phones. But now when I think of Lucy, I think of other things. I think of her falling in love, learning to dance the rumba with Desi late into the night. I think of Lucy in her 20s, in a small movie role, delivering a line that leaves a sailor speechless. Tell me, little boy, did you get a whistle or a baseball bat with that suit? And I think of this moment, when she was a young girl in Jamestown. I used to welcome a rainy day 
on a day where she was so present, she noticed everything around her. I still remember that. I can tell you the kind of day and the way the rain was coming down and the color of the grass and what the flowers did when it rained, how they close up and what the bushes did and how the trees dripped and how they glistened. And I know that that was wonderful. A day when Lucy's imagination was open and free and everything seemed possible. You've been listening to season three of The Plot Thickens. We hope you enjoyed it. We certainly enjoyed bringing it to you. Stay tuned for more episodes of The Plot Thickens, featuring my conversations with Lucy Arnaz and Aaron Sorkin. Angela Carone is our director of podcasts. Story editor and creative consultant is Joanne Ferrion. Audio editing and sound design by Mike Volgaris and his exceptional ears. Script writing by Angela Carone, Yako Friedman, Dale Maharaj, Maya Croth, and Joanne Varian. Yako Friedman is our senior producer. Associate production from Josh Lash. Additional editing and sound design by Paul Robert Mounsey and Heather Frankel. Additional script editing by Brian Erstadt and Susan White. James Sheridan is our researcher, fact checker, and resident Lucy expert. Mixing by Glenn Matulo and Tim Pelletier. Production support from Jordan Bogey, Bailey Tyler, Allison Fire, Julie Baton, Mario Riles, Susanna Zapeta, Liz Winter, and Reed Hall. Web support by Betsy Gooch. Thanks to David Byrne, Wendy Gardner, Taryn Jacobs, Diana Bosch, and the entire TCM marketing team. Thank you to Dotson Raider, whose interview with Lucy is heard throughout this podcast. Thomas Avery of Tune Welders composed our theme music. TCM's general manager is Paula Shagnon. Our executive producer is Charlie Tabish. Check out our website at tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. It has info about each episode and photos from throughout Lucille Ball's life. Again, that's tcm.com backslash the plot thickens. I'm your host, Ben Mankiewicz. Thanks for listening. See you next time.